Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing what anti-inflammatory should I take for osteoarthritis? Now, the first-line pain-relieving medication recommended in most therapeutic guidelines for osteoarthritis is the anti-inflammatory group of medications. They consistently demonstrate modest effects for relieving pain and improving function, pretty much irrespective of the site or joint affected by osteoarthritis, whether that be the hand, knee, or hip. There's a huge variety of anti-inflammatories available, different routes of administration, including by mouth and topically, different dosage strengths, along with other elements that influence patient preference, including cost, accessibility, over-the-counter availability, and so on. Now, like all medications, there are potential side effects. And in this particular instance, for the anti-inflammatory group, these are often not inconsequential. Most common side effects are elevations in blood pressure and concerns related to the gastrointestinal tract. While these are common, other concerning but less frequent side effects can also occur, including being associated with an increased risk of stroke and heart attacks, kidney and liver toxicity. The question that I'm frequently asked, both in clinic and at conferences, is what anti-inflammatory should I take? Now, with all of the information out there, it sounds like a simple question, but the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this complicated area. And we're joined by none other than Rick Day. And Professor Rick Day is internationally and nationally recognized for his research, leadership and advocacy in support of the quality use of medicines. He's been deeply involved 
in Australia's national medicines policy and the quality use of medicines component, culminating in his chairmanship of the Pharmaceutical Health and Rational Use of Medicines Committee for the federal government for about a decade from the year 2000. This work has informed his approach to advocacy and health policy and interventions. His research focuses on the quality use of medicines and methods of enhancing the safe use of medicines using electronic health systems and decision support tools. He's published over 600 peer-reviewed papers and his current collaborations have led to significant work investigating the potential of electronic health tools to increase medicine safety, but it also has other significant areas of research. Now, Rick is committed to undergraduate and postgraduate teaching and is a research mentor, and he's received many awards, including being a member of the Order of Australia. Rick is a practicing rheumatologist and clinical pharmacologist amongst a range of other hats that he wears. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to spend a little bit of time chatting about what's a really, really important topic. Now, before we actually get into the topic at hand, any relevant conflicts or disclosures that you need to acknowledge? No, I don't, David. That'll be simple. We can then move on. The... um, (laughs) The first question is usually me just getting to know the guests a little bit better um, and so the audience can get to know them a little bit better as well. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Uh, Labelled number one as as an enthusiast. Secondly, I'm an interested person and I think I'm a lifelong learner, which means I like asking questions. I think I'm a communicator, but I've had to learn that um, over many years. Uh, And through that, I think I can facilitate things happening in a positive direction. And I think finally, I'm a collaborator by heart because I don't think we can achieve much independently. So that's that's what I got out of my... Yeah, and very insightful. And I think some of those things probably tend to travel hand in hand as well, you know, in terms of... Being a communicator and collaborator and lifelong learner, I think some of those some of those qualities are wonderful qualities to have, and hopefully have assisted you in your research and some of the important developments you've made along your career. Now, can you, on a daily basis, when you're acting professionally at work, tell me a little bit more about what it is that you do? Yeah. So, um, look, firstly, as you noted, I'm a rheumatologist, so I spend a, a day a week consulting from dawn till dusk, and that's really to do with rheumatic diseases, conditions, uh, pain, a little bit of things to do with medicines, but essentially it's people who are in trouble with their musculoskeletal system. Uh, the rest of the re- week, it's a bit funny, but I'm a clinical pharmacologist and toxicologist the rest of the week, which... Uh, means that we're looking after patients who have problems with medicines in the hospital, but also trying to get good results from medicines used more broadly across the hospital and elsewhere. And a lot of that's to do with safety and individualising therapy. So one way, one modern way people talk about this is precision medicine, which is probably, you know, a bit over the top, but essentially it's the right medicine for an individual in all their circumstances. Uh, Also, as you noted, I'm a teacher. So this is largely to medical students, but also when I think about it is um, a lot of teaching with patients. I'm gonna learn from patients, but I think I spend a lot of my time, I I hope teaching uh, patients. 
I'm also involved in laboratory medicine to a degree, which is measuring drug concentrations and increasingly seeing how that plays to precision medicine. So genomics, which is genes and how they affect medicines and how they work is becoming more of what I do. And the final bit is um, being a researcher. And I love that, actually. I think that's probably why I got tied up in this general line of work. And I think that the focus there is pretty much how do we individualise therapy one way or another. And that's across more than musculoskeletal fields. But in the musculoskeletal field, I've been a bit sidetracked in recent years on gout, which is uh, I find very fascinating because it's quite prevalent and we know what to do, but it's a big job getting it to happen. So that's been consuming me a bit lately. It sounds like a, a wide area of diverse interests. And if you're anything like me, Rick, I think it's some of that variety is actually really very helpful because I think if we were to do one thing all the time, we probably wouldn't give it as much energy as we could. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. One of the words I was thinking of myself was a gadfly, but it's probably <laughs> doing many things, probably probably too many of them. But anyway, it's probably a testament to your talents. You know that you're drawn in so many different directions because you have so many talents. Now, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Yes, yeah, so look, I'm a, a family man first up, and I think uh, having nine grandchildren just gives a bit of a picture. Um, I'm very uh, grateful, proud of that, my family, and uh, love them to death. And uh, so that's a tremendous part of my life. We've always been theatre goers since, since the old tote, if any of the listeners remember uh, the, what preceded the Sydney Theatre Company. I used to be out at University of New South Wales and you'd have a a shearer would be cooking for us as we arrived. It was tremendous. Music as well. So we always enjoyed going to concerts. And I like cycling. And uh, so I cycle a a few times a week with friends. I I appear to be going slower up hills with with the years. Uh, I'm sailing. I sail dinghies, racing dinghies, and I've done that all my life. My wife, Barb, used to be the forehead hand in a two-man outfit, but she uh, threw the towel in a few years ago. So now I'm racing a laser, which is, means that I get hit in the head regularly by the boom, and uh, it's uh, a lot of fun. And I play tennis once a week, and um, uh, which I enjoy very much. Um, so that's pretty much, uh, pretty much my activities. You've got a full list there, Rick. I was just listening to you talking talking about the um, the cycling. I, I recently had an opportunity, actually, I do quite a bit of road biking, but recently had the opportunity to get on an e-bike. I don't know if you've ever sat on an e-bike, but your yes. challenges with hills, the, the e-bike can assist. I've heard that and I've seen it. It's looking more tempting by the minute. Not necessarily encouraging you to do that better done under your own steam, but um, it's definitely appealing, particularly if there's a lot of hills in your road. Now, just getting to the topic of the day, um, and you obviously have great expertise in this area, and I guess just to start off with, what is an anti-inflammatory medication and what are some common anti-inflammatories that most people would know about? 
Yeah. So look, they're a very um, old uh, group of drugs. In fact, the first one was aspirin that everyone's familiar with. But then there were uh, drugs. The first one that came after that, I think, was probably butazolidin and then something called indomethacin. But there have been more modern ones since. And there's a whole list of them. And people would be familiar with Nurofen and Voltaren. And the proper names for those are ibuprofen and diclofenac, but naproxen's another one, naproxen. But it's a very long list and they've been widely used. And in fact, uh, almost um, 15% of elderly people have been taking NSAIDs um, in some countries, including UK and Australia, probably a bit less now. But this was um, very common. So indicating a lot of people have got pain because their main indication is for pain. Uh, also for inflammation, I'm not so sure how really good they are at inflammation. But the other one, the other uh, pharmacological effect is reducing temperature. So for children, um, we'd all be familiar with giving ibuprofen, nurofen to children with fevers to, to uh, help them. Uh, so those three are the uh, th- three mechanisms are, are what this uh, or three effects of, of NSAIDs. So very widely used and indicating, I guess, the need across our area of medicine, particularly, which is musculoskeletal medicine. Yeah, yeah, definitely a huge unmet need in terms of pain control for people that have musculoskeletal pain. And just digging a little bit more into one of the comments you made, um, obviously the name insinuates that, you you know, these are anti-inflammatory. But I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit how they work you know what's what's the mechanism of action and do they work centrally or peripherally yeah so look we 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 actually know how these work it took a long time to work it out and really a nobel prize in medicine was given out when we figured out how aspirin worked and this is by inhibiting something called prostaglandins so they're like hormones and there's a wide range of them and they contribute to inflammation they contribute to raised temperatures and they contribute to pain. So blocking them, which these drugs do very well, contributes to reducing the symptoms from those particular problems. It's turned out that it's a bit more complicated than just blocking the formation of prostaglandins. There's two pathways of blocking the prostaglandins, and uh, these pathways have led to some new drugs. Some people have heard of celecoxib or celebrex, probably the most common drug that actually blocks one of the pathways, which was hoped that it would be differentiating uh, the good effects, that is relieving pain and inflammation from some of the bad effects, which we'll talk about in a minute. And they do that to a degree, but probably not as successfully as we, we would like. The evolution of the drugs, they were a really active area when these selective COX-2 inhibitors, they're called, Select, which, which will block one of the pathways, producing the inflammatory and pain-producing prostaglandins. Uh, that was an incredibly active area in the pharmaceutical industry and drug trials and in rheumatology. Pretty, pretty quiet these days because there have been so many other drugs in the rheumatic diseases, particularly things like rheumatoid arthritis, that have really overtaken uh, NSAIDs for those conditions. And Rick, do they, I mean, just thinking about that mechanism of action, and obviously we're focusing here on pain as, as opposed to temperature or, or any other mechanism, 
do they work predominantly centrally or peripherally in terms of providing pain relief? Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have always been felt to act peripherally, that is outside the brain and the central nervous system, and particularly at the sites of arthritis and inflammation. However, we have learned that they, they do have central effects, that is they get into the brain and the spinal cord, and they do have effects, or sometimes side effects as a result. Uh, but the anti-inflammatory effect is, is mainly a peripheral effect, and that contrasts with paracetamol, Panadol, which is much more able to affect the brain and the spinal cord and produce the pain relief that that drug does in, uh, in, in the brain and spinal cord compared to the, compared to the anti-inflammatory drugs. Sort of interesting, if you think about people having a tooth removed, which is a painful process, that's in the periphery, it's not in the brain. But in fact, Panadol as well as drugs like ibuprofen work pretty well in that situation. And they both block prostaglandins, actually, either centrally or peripherally. But for years, people have wondered about, you know, some people, why do they get a, a headache with anti-inflammatory drugs or some other strange effect on their, you know, the way they're feeling or their ability to think or what have you. And that can be due to what's called central effects of these drugs. Not a big ticket item, but it does happen. Yeah, and they've also been prepared in for different routes of administration, you know, oral, topical, I mean, suppositories, sometimes injectable. What's the rationale for having different routes of preparation? Is it because of toxicity concerns, the sites of efficacy? What, what, what is the purpose there? Yeah, so, so you're right. And um, I mean, one of the first things people noticed about these drugs was that they could upset people's stomach and cause indigestion. And even worse, that uh, they might cause bleeding and ulceration, which can be very serious, of course. So people thought, well, m maybe if the drug isn't taken by a mouth going down to the stomach where the ulcers mainly seem to occur, um, that that would be safer. So why, why don't we use what's called a suppository? But they are actually effective. But, but interestingly enough, the people still get ulcers and um, indigestion, not at probably not as much as if taken orally. And the reason for that is that this mechanism of inhibiting prostaglandins still happens in the lining of the stomach and the intestine, even if you give the drug via uh, the, uh, the rectum or by a suppository, or even if you give it intravenously. So probably the, I guess the, the advance or change has been to say, well, what about if we rub these drugs on the skin? Uh, and, and people are familiar with lot, lots of over-the-counter products. You can go into the pharmacy and get uh, topical Voltaren, for example, Diclofenac, and rub that on your joints. And we know that that's effective. There are quite a lot of good quality studies that show for people with sore fingers, for example, that that might be helpful. And approaching the helpfulness that you might see with um, taking the drugs of medicines by mouth but we also know that if you try to measure the drug in the joint uh, depending on what type of joint you're talking about you can, you actually can measure some medicine in the joint and there's less in the in the blood and it clearly is less likely to cause things like ulcers and the other effects that uh, we'll talk about uh, so intravenously or intramuscularly we use that particularly in anesthesia and modern anesthesia likes to use a range of medicines. They call it multimodal, using small amounts of different drugs. 
less likely to cause adverse problems because you're using less of medicines. So, uh, yep, every way that you've thought of that you could administer an NSAID, it's been uh, it's been uh, done. So, uh, the, the commonest by far, of course, is by mouth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you touched upon this, but it's probably helpful just to expand on it. It's probably very difficult to generalise to all anti-inflammatories, but how efficacious on average are they for relieving pain? Very much depends on the pain and uh, which uh, what, what the origin is. So look for an acute pain like a headache or having a tooth out or a, a sports injury with a swollen ankle because you went over on, on your side and twisted it. That, they can be really quite effective, although the evidence-based, like the quality of the studies, say for an, a swollen ankle from a sports injury isn't that great. But uh, when it comes to, for example, osteoarthritis, the commonest condition in the knee and the hip, the evidence is pretty poor for really a big effect on average. And in fact, you can, you can measure an effect and it reaches what we call statistical significance. But if you're thinking of pain on a scale of 0 to 100 and talk about how much improvement on average might you get with someone with pain, in the knee from osteoarthritis. But if you if you get to 10 or around about that level, you're doing pretty well. And that's about the level we can detect. So that's the average. Now, some people will report, you know, I felt that was very helpful. And a lot of people would report, well, they don't think it was much help at all. There are other effects in that sort of a response, which might, you people might have heard of the placebo effect that if you take any medicine with some expectation that it'll help well for most of us it will help at least for a while so hard to unravel but in really good studies particularly in the knee and the back as, as well it's pretty hard to get excited about the amount of benefit for the average person for long-term problem like osteoarthritis Brilliant. And it's really obviously very helpful to encapsulate how effective they are before we start talking about potential downsides. But we've touched upon this a little bit, but can you expand on what the possible side effects are, their frequency, in particular, any medicines that they shouldn't be taking or any contraindications in certain people? Yes. So look, this is a very important topic because pain, osteoarthritis, very common, commoner in older people who happen to usually or more likely have other conditions, impairments of various organs, for example, the kidneys. So more susceptible to adverse effects from this group of drugs and more susceptible to, as you were saying, David, to drug interactions. So probably the one we learn about first, and uh, this was probably 50 years ago, was uh, peptic ulceration and bleeding. Now, one of the factors there is that the older you get the more likely you are to have a spontaneous peptic ulcer and in fact till we understood the cause of peptic ulcers which is this bug called helicobacter you might have some of the listeners might have heard of uh, this was a, a bigger problem but one, one thing's for certain as, as you get into the 60s 70s 80s you're a bit more likely to have a problem now, if you take an NSAID on top of that, it's like a multiplying effect. In fact, we describe it as an exponential effect. So the, the risks go up. So the background risks uh, start to get a bit troubling. And if you're taking an NSAID, if your personal risk 
probably doubles or becomes three times it would have been if you hadn't been taking these drugs. And that, that becomes a problem. Now, if you're a young person, it, it's much less of a problem because the background risk is moderately low. So uh, what, what can happen? Well, you can have an ulcer that can bleed, that can be very serious. And look, you know, if you count up the number of people per annum in Australia who have this problem, it's in the hundreds at least, and in other countries, you know, thousands because of bigger populations. Now, one of the deceptive things is you get a bit older that you think, okay, well, look, I don't have any symptoms. I can take these drugs, don't get indigestion. It's not a good indicator. In fact, it's a poor indicator. So you can have the ulcer and the bleeding without um, having any discomfort before. And vice versa, you can have discomfort and think, boy, I must have an ulcer, but you may not. So it's a tricky to sort it out just from symptoms. We've learnt that, that these newer variety of drugs like Celebrex were, are a bit better, reduce the risk a bit on average, but they don't eliminate it. And they, we've also learnt that you can reduce the risk even more, and it's described as cost-effective to do it, to give uh, agents to protect the, the stomach and intestinal lining uh, they're called gastroprotective agents. A lot of people have heard of these things. Nexium uh, would be a, a, a common one, LOSEC. They're proton pump inhibitors. That's a, lo a long word, but it's actually reducing the acid in the stomach very effectively. So if you really were having to take these medicines, it's, especially as you get older, then this is a good idea. Even if you don't have more risk factors, and the risk factors uh, very important. If you had had an ulcer before or a bleed before, this is really risky. And if you happen to be on a blood thinning agent, uh, such as uh, warfarin, you might have heard of. But lots of people now are on these newer anticoagulants because they've got conditions like atrial fibrillation or had a clot. Xeralto might be one that you might have heard of, etc. And these are just like warfarin. Uh, the risks are high. And if you're taking aspirin, uh, everyone I know at my age is taking aspirin, <laughs> low-dose aspirin, that increases the risk, so it adds. So the gut's worrying. So that's probably number one. I think number two is if you're getting older, lots of people have got hypertension. Hopefully they're on therapy, although we know half of the people who should be on aren't. But if they are, then the blood pressure can go uh, higher with NSAIDs. They don't doesn't necessarily do so and you can measure it so that's fine but it does need to be checked now similarly if the kidney is not working so well which happens as you get a bit older if you've had kidney disease even without NSAIDs can reduce the function of the kidney not necessarily damage it initially but but certainly re reduce it so that's a concern a lot of people have got cardiac failure heart failure for most people now with our modern uh, medicines, we control that pretty well. However, if you start taking NSAIDs, there's a risk that that'll worsen. And in fact, one of the commonest reasons to come back into hospital with cardiac failure is to start taking the drugs we're talking about. And it's very troubling if, if the individual doesn't know about this risk and starts to uh, get a pain in the knee and thinks, oh, hang on, I'll, I'll go and get some neurofilm from the local pharmacist and starts taking that without understanding that that's a risk. So probably the last one to mention here is, is heart attack itself, which is, we didn't really realise this until these um, COX-2 inhibitors like Celebrex 
came on. And there was one important one called Vioxx where we really learned that that these uh, newer selective drugs seem to be even more likely to cause a heart attack. And we know the mechanism. It's to, to do with the prostaglandins that we talked about. But it actually extends to all the NSAIDs, so pretty much. So if you happen to have what's called coronary artery disease or had a heart attack before, it's risky and your odds of having a heart attack increase. I'd put it in the same category as risk factors we know about. Smoking, raised lipids, lack of exercise, overweight. And put in NSAIDs, uh, that's another one. So, so all of these things suggest that if you're going to use an NSAID, there ought to be a really good reason to do it. Uh, and, and of course, we've just discussed that, you know, on average, the effects aren't so impressive. So again, I think you need to have that in mind. I think it's a great pity if people start thinking, well, this might be good long term, just keep taking them. Not too sure if they help or not. Uh, that's a pity because it probably isn't necessary and it's risky. Yeah, it's wonderful information. I think a really helpful overview of very complex, but also still very topical area because of the frequency with which anti-inflammatories are used and particularly the population who are often carrying a number of different comorbidities that make them at higher risk for some, some of the side effects. Now, we touched upon some of this, but you know, so any, I guess, profound tips that you might have to promote safety, you spoke, you spoke about potentially something to protect your stomach, identifying those people who are at greater risk of gastrointestinal toxicity. But just wondering if you had any other potential tips that people might like to use. Yeah, look, I think people find that just on the indigestion side of use of these medicines, that taking them with food seems to help. Now, it doesn't actually reduce the risk of ulceration much, fortunately, but but, but, but in terms of comfort, that's a, a little bit helpful. So that's, I think, an important thing. The other thing is we do know, and it took a long time to work this out, that there is a relationship. It's not really close, but the amount you take, and that is the dose each day, uh, there's a relationship between, in fact, all the adverse effects we talked about, about including the ulceration uh, and how much you take. So if you take less, it's safer, less dose. And although it's a bit controversial, because our conditions that we're talking about fluctuate in terms of their symptoms that you probably don't need to take these things for, for many of us constantly so if you can use the lowest dose for the shortest time that's that's safer and, and one of the other interesting things we've learned is this i've talked about the relationship with dose and the adverse effects increasing particularly risk from ulcer but the uh, effect on on the symptoms doesn't go up in a straight line like it does for the ulcer. So in other words, you get most of the effect you're going to get at a lower dose anyway. So if you felt like, well, this is not enough, I'll double the dose, that should double the effect. Uh, well, no, that's not the case. The increments are, are much less. So it, it, it's sort of almost a yes, no situation. Uh, you did a work or it didn't. With, with the starting dose, well, it didn't. Well, it's, it's increasing the dose is unlikely to help a lot. Can do with some people, but so that, those are the key things. And I think probably the big question is: Do I really need to keep taking this? Is there something else I can do that will 
make this less of a proposition. I certainly would try, if, if, if we're talking about arthritis of the hands, probably in the knees as well, I would try you know, topical NSAIDs if you need to, because it's proven that they do have some effect. Again, it's not huge on average, but for some individuals, that's enough, and um, or, or it might work quite well in individuals for whatever reason, which we've never um, quite figured out. Probably the last thing, David, is about, uh, well, there's a lot of them, you know, are they all the same? Uh, should, should we move from one to the other? And, you know, I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out what the basis of this was with a lot of other people. And I think it's fair to say we never worked it out. But there is a group of people who say, yes, this one suits me and that one doesn't. And that could, is moderately sustained. But I'd have to say that the quality of the evidence for that is pretty uh, low. I think most people are probably in the middle of, that you can go from one to the other and it probably reflects the fluctuating nature of the condition and a lot of other matters, not the pharmacology, I think. Yeah, that's no, really helpful. Because, I mean, I think the, the general dogma would suggest that if one doesn't work, it might be worthwhile trying another. And as you're suggesting, there's potentially not a lot of science behind that and it may just be the disease fluctuating. Now, back to the original question, you know, which, which anti-inflammatory? Is yeah. there any evidence to suggest, and you, you touched upon this, at least from a cardiovascular standpoint, it sounds like the COX-2 is potentially slightly worse than the other non-selective agents. Mm. Is there any non-selective agent that might be safer than others? Yeah. So, look, I think it, it, it is a bit challenging. There's a fair bit of overlap, but I think the the bulk of the evidence, not the greatest evidence, but the bulk of it, this quite a bit, would be saying the proxen's a bit safer with the heart, particularly from the point of view of heart attack. But again, I, what I would add here is that take the lowest dose. This is important. I think the other thing is if you take a low, one of the um, most available ones is ibuprofen because and a good thing about it is there's a great range of doses available. So over the counter, there's 200 milligrams if, if you wrote a prescription, you'd be writing it for 400. And, uh, you know, when I was in America, David, like you, there were people prescribing it, uh, you know, 3,600 milligrams, like huge doses. So what that says is a great range. So you can use, again, getting back to a low dose. And that looks pretty safe from a cardiac point of view. The um, diclofenac, you know, it's an old drug, but it's got a, this selectiveness in its in the way it affects the prostaglandin production. So in a higher dose, this seems a bit more risky. I think in low dose, it's probably pretty right. Again, I'm keep on coming back to low dose, but if you wanted to be as cardiac safe as you could get, this is from the heart attack point of view, probably low dose, naproxen low as, you, you know, as least often as, as you can get away with. And I think um, otherwise, uh, for all the other problems which we talked about, which was blood pressure and kidney function, heart failure, those type of problems, probably they're all much of a muchness, again, those being, uh, being um, most important. Fantastic. All right. Well, hopefully people can digest all of that wonderful information that Rick's just provided and identify which one is most likely to be suitable for them. But as always, there's oftentimes unanswered questions. Rick, from your perspective, what are the most pressing research needs in the field? Yeah, so look, I think it follows from our discussion that a safer 
a more effective analgesia, whether or not there's inflammation there or not. In OA, you're the expert here, David, but I mean, there is inflammation there in knees and hips and it's contributing. So an anti-inflammatory that's safer and more effective. I mean, corticosteroids, we know this is prednisone that people have heard of. We don't like giving medicines like that long term, but they're very good as at reducing inflammation. Unfortunately, if we could cut out the side effects, people would be trying forever. But we do need a, a, a better analgesic that's, that's safer. So that's probably the, the major. Yeah, definitely. Pain is still a large unmet need in the context of osteoarthritis. But I think for everybody who's out there, there's a lot of active research going on to develop new agents that hopefully, as Rick suggested, will be both more effective and safer. Rick, is there any information that you'd like to point people towards in terms of being quite patient-friendly resources or links that might shed further light on the topic or any questions that I didn't ask that I should have? Yeah, I think one of the organisations that's a very good one for patient consumers is, it used to be called the National Prescribing Service, but it now goes by its acronym, nps.org.au. Now, it's a national body. It's funded by the Commonwealth, and its job is to help everyone, including patients, consumers, to, to get the, the most out of medicines and investigations. And if, if people look that up and look under consumers and look up and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or arthritis, uh, it's got very good information, including what, what's, I think, very important for patients. And that is if you're picking up a medicine, make sure you take up the consumer medicines information each time. It's brief. It's meant to be uh, friendly for the non-specialist, you know, for the lay person. And it just tells you about some of the adverse effects we've been talking about and what to do about them if they happen, for example. So I'd recommend that. And the other thing I recommend is Arthritis Australia and its good website uh, about arthritis and the treatments. And the, the last one I use, and there's, there are lots of options here, but with people with chronic pain, I think you need help to understand what's going on if you have pain for a long time. And I use a website that's been developed called thiswayup.com.au, which it's an a, uh, evidence-based approach to how do you do a bit better functioning when you have pain? What are the strategies? And a lot of people find this really helpful. They didn't really appreciate some of the things. So I, I found those, those uh, resources useful for my patients. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thanks, Rick. The, now, the last part of the show, I usually try and dig into you a little bit more and get some insights. And again, this is primarily just me being very selfish and wanting, wanting to glean as much information as I can. But in the interest of time, I might just skim through some of those. But my favorite question is, why is it you do what you do? What motivates you? What makes you tick? My father was a general practitioner in um, Asheville. And, um, I, I just thought this, what he was doing was, was tremendous from an early age. And I could see that it made a difference to uh, his patients. So I think that's what motivates me. I still love seeing patients and hope, hopefully helping, trying to understand what's going on and to give some insights as to how they might cope a, a bit better. So I think that's, that's the thing that uh, motivates me. 
So a, a, a doctor from birth by the sound of things. And it sounds like you had a wonderful exactly. influence at home. If you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Save the planet for all of us. And in there is, I think, concerns like I'm sure everyone has listening about the planet and its future, uh, conservation and what we're doing. Uh, and then I say for all of us, and I guess that is my concern and wish that we look after all of us right to the bottom of the heap, if you, so that the, uh, unless, unless we're doing that, I think we're, uh, we're really in trouble. So they're the two themes I, I feel very passionate about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear you, particularly with regards, I guess, the breakdown in the way some communities are functioning and social supports. But yeah. I watched a wonderful documentary recently, David Attenborough, um, and at the age of 93, just such a powerful person and just talking about the importance of preserving the world and not letting it go to um, get rotten by uh, various individuals. But we're all, obviously all, all making a contribution in that area. Before I get too political, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis in passing? So my advice in a aphoristic way is a graded exercise and weight loss to improve function and reduce pain. So just as a little explanation, I think with a lot of my patients who I think are motivated and enthused, a bit overmated, a bit overmotivated, and go at it pretty hard and lose enthusiasm quickly. So braving it, just keeping at it with um, confidence, that's going to make a difference. And that um, as function improves, life gets better, and uh, the pain is less impactful. So I think I spent a lot of time trying to help people grade all of this. And look, at the end of the day. I think one of the big messages, and this is your work, David, which I think is tremendous, is that uh, the answer isn't the medicines as much as um, the public health approach or, uh, and helping people understand that and to um, live it. Yeah, such a powerful way to finish, Rick. And I, I mean, I think you've really covered it off so well today is that the medicines will have a modest effect. They can help, but they're not the answer. And I think it's helpful having this information. But as long as people understand that there are lots of other things that they can do out there, it's such, such important information. Now, Rick, thank you so much for your time. Great to spend a little bit of time chatting about something you're so knowledgeable about. And thank you for sharing that wisdom. No, thank you, David. And thank you for the work you do and uh, for this opportunity, which I've enjoyed very much. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. 
The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.